11.55. Almost midnight. Enough time for one more story. One more story before 12. Just to keep us warm. Welcome to KAB, your home for sweet jazz. Hey everyone, it's Mike here from The Pod and The Pendulum, the horror movie podcast that covers all horror movie franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. As always, I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and in the co-host chair today we have from the Disenfranchised podcast, coming back again for more John Carpenter, Mr. Stephen Foxworthy. Stephen, how are we? Doing great. You know I can't get enough Carpenter. And honestly, I don't know what's sweeter, the sweet jazz or the sweet, sweet dulcet tones of John mm. Houseman. I don't know what's sweeter. I really don't. Oh, love it. How do you not, you know, when you when you have an opportunity to start with the house, the big house, as he the liked big to house. be called. Hell yeah. As he liked to be called, is, is, uh, I'm starting that now. <laughs> you have to absolutely take that opportunity. But Stephen, you are just, you know, another voice on the radio. You're just a voice on the other end of the, the phone right now. So That's me. Yeah, but why don't you tell our listeners what we are here to talk about today? Oh, Mike, Mike, we are we're in for a treat. We are here to talk about ghost pirates and John Carpenter's 1980 The Fog. Yeah, our Joe uh, John Carpenter June continues with the second of three movies we're going to be covering here, and we have a good one. We have a classic ghost story that we're going to be discussing today. So before we dive into the movie a little bit here, let's just kind of give our initial impressions. And Stephen, when was the first time you watched this one, and what were your initial thoughts on it? Uh, I watched this one in the pandemic uh, was the first time. I, I basically just decided to go through the entire filmography of John Carpenter apropos of nothing, really. I just I was looking at filmmakers that I liked and just going through their entire oeuvres. So he was one that I chose because I really liked The Thing and hadn't seen any of his other films. So I really just dug into Carpenter in 2020. And so I came across this one. And I was not as impressed with it on first rewatch. I've, I think I've seen it a couple times since mm-hmm. then, including uh, earlier this morning for this for this podcast. And I, it just grows on me every time I, I see it. Um, like, I just love the idea of just this very simple ghost story in this very picturesque town. The town itself, not to not to be a cliche, is is a character in the in the movie. And it's kind of this little bustling small town with a dark secret and how do you not love that like Mm -hmm. i don't know it's it's grown on me every time and i think i I started it at like a three star it's grown up to about a four star for me like i just i i really dig this movie and i think it's it's just kind of a a lost hidden gem right in the middle of carpenter's early filmography i think yeah 
Yeah, I have a very similar experience with it. I watched it sooner. I have the feeling that I bought it when it was released on DVD, I think in the year 2000, um, because it was just, you know, I was one of those persons that at the time I worked for an AV electronics store and we got a deal with Tower Records where we got each other's store discounts. So every Tuesday I would take the uh, Green Line two stops up to the top of Newbury Street where Boston's Tower Record was and just get like a 35 or 40% deal off on DVDs and just walk out with a fistful of movies. And, you know, being someone who loved Halloween and the thing and they live at that time, you know, I wasn't necessarily like deep into Carpenter's movies, but I had seen enough to know that like I wanted to watch almost everything that I could from him. Um, And the fog was one of those I had grabbed on disc and same deal though, where it's like, yeah, this is a good movie. It is, you know, by no means like, um, but I would say like at first I would say this is kind of like maybe in the middle or bottom half of my, uh, if I were ranking Carpenter movies, but Mm -hmm. every single time I go back to it and I went back to it in the pandemic, went back to it at the start of this year, I just put it on and that this, this movie was actually the one where I'm like, let's do Car- John Carpenter June. Like, let's take a little break from the format because yeah. when are we going to get to discuss the fog with our listeners otherwise? So, and I watched it twice, at least twice, maybe two and a half times in preparation. And I'm looking at my letterbox and every single time I rate it, it just goes up a half star. So yeah. I think it's gone from like a three to about a four and a half star nice. movie. It might be like a top five just ghost story for me in general. Although we'll talk about whether it's a ghost story or not, I think, when we talk about the movie. Because I have questions. I'm just asking, asking questions. questions. Just, Just asking questions. I'm just looking at the evidence and asking questions. Think <laughs> think for yourself, sheeple. Just because Chewie is over here telling you it's a ghost story, you know, that's just mainstream media, once again, enemy of the people, the press, telling you that, you know, <laughs> who defines what a ghost is? What isn't the government telling us about right. John Carpenter's The Fog? Chemicals in the water making the frogs gay. Hell. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Oh my goodness, we went there, huh? <laughs> my goodness, I don't know, man. <laughs> wow. Um, I want to um say like as we're like talking about this movie, one really cool little resource. Not necessarily sort of talk about the background of the movie. It's not necessarily the most in depth in terms of like the behind the scenes, like what's going on in the making of the movie. But there is a book by Kim Gottlieb Walker who was the still still photographer on set for Carpenter from Halloween through the fog, Escape from New York, all the way through Christine. So mm. she worked um, on like five of his movies as like the still photographer. And I strongly recommend this book if you're a fan of Carpenter because the the, the prints are just stunning. Like they just, she has a, does an incredible job of like capturing life on the set of a carpenter movie and there's some great anecdotes in there as well um so go ahead and pick that book up if you haven't already it's great i'll have to check that out thanks yeah, for the rec do so i um, mean listeners you can too 
Like, that's just, <laughs> you're allowed. That, that's your allowed. Uh, all right, let's talk a little bit about the background of this movie. Not a ton on it. We're going to kind of go right into the movie here in a few minutes. But the idea for this movie comes to Carpenter when he and his then girlfriend and longtime producing and writing partner Deborah Hill are in the UK promoting Assault on Precinct 13. And they are visiting Stonehenge, uh, which I've never I've driven by Stonehenge a couple times, like on our way back from my in-laws to Heathrow. Like we'll get a car service back and they'll always point out their Stonehenge, but they'll <laughs> never stop and let us go and tour it. So they're like, no, which to be fair, it's a five hour drive from Cornwall to Heathrow. So that's ah. 10 hours in the car. But I think one day I would love to go visit it. But we've sometime. seen it and wave by. It's kind of like the Griswolds in European vacation. Right. Like, hey, kids, Big Ben, Parliament. Like, that's been my experience. <laughs> but needless to say, that was not Carpenter and Hill's experience. They were at Stonehenge and they are witnessing uh, a fog rolling in from the distance. And Carpenter, like, turns to Hill and he's just like, what do you think? Like, wouldn't it be creepy if, like, there were monsters or some sort of creatures that were rolling in and then that's the impetus for the movie and carpenter being like a huge you know 50s sci-fi and horror movie buff uh he also cited the 1958 british horror movie the trollenberg terror as its source which is about a, uh, monsters that are living in the clouds and uh, he's talked to Fangoria and also like for the special edition um, of The Fog for Scream Factory. He talks about his love of EC comics and a trope that they used again and again was like the dead that had been wrongly mur- basically the murder victims coming back uh, as ghosts and coming back for revenge against the people that had wronged them. Like that was a huge thing for him. Uh, and again, just very simple stories. Um there is a little bit of a true life connotation. Like if this movie were made now, you would be like based on true events. Like it would get right. that tag. Right. Yeah. Uh, because in the 1790s in Galleria, uh, California, there was a, uh, uh, I might not have been California. Was it California? It could have been 1790 in California, 1890, a hundred years late. I'm only off by a century. What's a century? Between, between friends, friends right? right but needless to say there was a shipwreck right off the coast of galleria california where the townsfolk like they knew like this ship was filled with gold so they lured it in uh during a fog with like bonfire saying like this is the way to st- shore knowing that it would hit the rocks crash and uh, the townsfolks then went on and like scavenged the ship at that point and took all the gold off it. So bit of like a true life uh, little event there that also inspired this. Which is just, I mean, it's it's terrible that that thing happened, but it I think it adds an air of um, realism to the actual story because it's mm-hmm not only does it sound like something that could happen, it is something that did in fact actually happen, yes. yeah. which is, I, I don't know. I, I like that. I dig that quite a bit. People are bastards. I mean, that's pretty yes. much, <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Yeah. And I, I like the added layer that Carpenter adds to it because again, Carpenter is just such a social commentator 
that he and I'm sure we'll talk about this more later, but the gold goes directly to funding the church like the mm-hmm. church is ultimately what the the one responsible for the misdeeds. And I mm-hmm. I I really dig on that. I think that's yeah. such a, an interesting layer that he adds to that. Yeah, that's a great point. I look forward to kind of talking about that when we kind of talk about like Carpenter and moralism. Mm -hmm. Um, So he is offered the opportunity to do this movie. I believe he like pitched it on an airplane ride. Like he's basically like sitting next to one of the heads of Embassy and Avco Studios. And, And at the time, like he didn't realize how big Halloween was getting because, you know, it had a pretty slow rollout. You know, it wasn't a big picture. It was an independent movie that was made for a few hundred grand. It wasn't supposed to be this massive success. So he had at the he speaks about thinking like at the time that it kind of flopped because he thought it had kind of come and gone. But and because the reviews also at the time were kind of middling right. uh, initially for Halloween. But they're like, it's doing gangbusters overseas. It was picking up steam in the U.S. And this exec is like, no, we want to be in the John Carpenter business. Uh, let's do like two pictures together through Avco and Assembly, uh, Embassy Pictures. So he was kind of shocked. In meantime, uh, Erwin Yablans, who had produced um, Halloween and had given Carpenter the idea like, I want a movie about a guy who terrorizes babysitters just write it and do something with it. He's under the impression that Carpenter is a going to do the fog for him and then also write and direct Halloween too. Mm. And when he finds out that embassy is going to be doing the fog, he's rightfully pissed off. I mean, you can't really blame him. Right. And Sue's embassy. Um, it's pretty bitter. And what comes out of it is, the agreement that embassy and Avco will do the fog. Avco also does escape from New York as the second picture on that deal. It's still, um, you know, the fog is still considered kind of considered an independent film. Like this is still pre union Carpenter. It wouldn't be right. to escape that Carpenter's like joins the Carpenter's crew joins the union. And Yablins gets the rights to distribute Halloween two and, signs Carpenter on to direct that picture. And I think we go more into detail on that way back in our first year when we covered uh, John Carpenter's Halloween. Right. So he casts Adrian Barbeau. He writes the role of Stevie with her in mind. They had met on his TV film, Someone's Watching Me in 1978 uh, in April. And by January 1st of 79, the two were married. And he definitely wanted her to be in more of his pictures. Um, In the book uh, that I mentioned, uh, Barbeau talks very fondly about shooting this movie with him and saying, like, we got separate hotel rooms. Like, we weren't going to really talk on set. He didn't want to send any favoritism. And she said by lunch the first day, he's just like, ah, this sucks. Fuck it. Just like, (laughs) um, you know, and I think the thing is, like, because of so many of these persons like he had shot Halloween with, he would go on to use them again in escape and the thing. Um, It was kind of like a gang of friends. So you didn't really have that necessarily like, well, Oh, you're just here because you're the director's wife. It's like, no, like this was a almost like a family that was making movies together. He's building a repertory company basically. And you, cause you see, 
a lot of the same people coming back. And if he's not using them actually in the film, he's using their names to name characters like mm-hmm. Castle um, or Dan O'Bannon. Uh, Dan O'Bannon, right? Like you, you know, he'll you'll throw the the character name in there. So like he's got, you know, these these friends of his that he just kind of is kind of bringing along with him, and. It, it, it's interesting to see kind of at what point some of them start to like go other places. Cause like Jamie Lee was the voice of the narrator at the beginning of escape, mm-hmm. uh, which we talked about last, like, but eventually like she kind of blows up, goes somewhere else. Atkins kind of is in a lot of Carpenter adjacent stuff, but I don't know that he ever works directly with Carpenter again. He is in escape. He has a very he's, small role in escape. Right. And also he's the lead in Halloween three, which uh, right. Carpenter wrote and produced. So, right. But yeah, you're right. He's not, he's someone that you would think worked with Carpenter for even more movies. Like you could see him in the thing. You could mm-hmm. see him in they live. You could see him in all of these. God, I wish he was in the thing. How cool. Would Who that would be? you replace? Then see, that's the question. Cause I mean, everyone in that movie is so pitch perfect. Um, I don't know, man. Just I write another guy. Just write another mm-hmm. guy with just a big old like big old mustache. I don't mm-hmm. know. And just call him mustache. I don't know. Could be Wilfred Brimley's son. There you go. This is my large adult son, Tom Atkins. <laughs> we baby, share a love for Brimley. mustaches. <laughs> Wasn't Brimley relatively young when he filmed the thing? Brimley Wasn't he like forties forever? Yeah, something yeah. like that. Because he's been oh God. That man has been old forever. And he's like, yeah, he's, he's not still kicking, is he? Uh, I think he passed away recently. Yeah, yeah 2020. He died in August okay. of 2020. He was born in 34. So he would have been just shy of 50. Shy, when he like did my the age. Yeah, my age when he did the thing. Now, listeners, I could go on social media and post like side by sides of like Brimley in the thing and myself and if any of you fuckers are like, yeah, I see that, I will <laughs> snap. I will absolutely lose it, and you know there about will be the consequences. You know about the the Brimley Cocoon line, right? I haven't seen Cocoon since grade school. There is a because that that's another one yes. of those movies. It's, but it's like now older than well than Wilford Brimley, Brimley was when in he Cocoon. made the thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. That which is a thing that I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in. Correct me if I'm wrong. He's in Hard Target, isn't he? Brimley. Brimley. I've never seen Hard Target. You've never seen Hard Target. Never seen Hard Target. He is in Hard Target. Okay, you should, Mike. You need to see Hard Target. You haven't seen Halloween before 2020, and you're giving me one of those like, sir. How dare you? I not look. Seen look, Hard I didn't Target. see Hard Target before 2020, but okay. I but I've seen Hard Target. I, is is hard target Van Dam? It is okay. What is that? I, why? No, because I really like Bloodsport. I really like a couple of the Universal Soldiers, Lionheart. Um, I will not turn down like a, a you know. I it's like Van Dam and yeah. John Woo. Okay, so See, like, and I think it's John Woo's first American film too. I think yeah, it's his immediate follow up to Hard Boiled. John Woo. I mean, Face Off. He did. Right. That's probably yeah. his best known, right. most beloved like American picture. But like John Woo in the U.S. wasn't allowed to quite be John Woo. Correct. Right. Okay. Which 
it is really hard to track down like a moderately priced copy of the killers the killer i believe it yeah hard-boiled the killer it is really hard to track down those movies and find like a moderately priced i want to get my hands like two movies i haven't seen that i desperately i've i've also never seen hard-boiled and it's my great shame that i've never Mm -hmm. seen hard-boiled because i definitely need to yeah um all right, but getting back to this movie. Sorry, a little bit of a tangent. Um, we talked That's what you about... get when you invite me along, Mike. I'm sorry. No, I like the tangents. That's kind of part of the fun. I agree. Uh, and now I have a new. Now I have a movie that I have to go watch this summer. There it's you go. part of my goal to see 100 movies between now and Labor Day. Hell that yeah. I have like hard targets got to get on there. Uh, so he cast Barbeau, and through adrian barbeau he cast tom atkins who had been a friend of barbeau's he had done like theater together i believe like um it it, you know should note too like adrian barbeau is coming in as carpenter's first girlfriend then wife shortly after like carpenter and deborah hill who were together during the making of halloween like they had split up romantically they had lived together for a time right and to the credit of like Deborah Hill, like Barbo talks so fondly of her saying like, look, this could have been really hard and awkward. Like she was the producer and could have made my life really miserable, but she took me in and was like nothing but warm and gracious and a real friend on everything that I worked on with John together. And she has nothing but like great things to say about, about Deborah Hill, who, which I, again, the first bad word i hear against deborah hill whenever you hear her talked about or read anything about her like the first negative word the next negative word will be the first one right that i hear about her yeah she's just again i i I talked last week about these these directors who's who produce this great work with these female writing and producing partners um cameron and gail ann hurd i think had a similar Mm -hmm. relationship as well where they just like they end up and they end up with a co-star, but their producing partner like sticks around and like continues to work. I think Cameron and Bigelow too had, had mm-hmm. a similar kind of relationship. Like Cameron produces a couple movies for her even after they split. So it's like, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of stuff tied up in yeah. there, but you know, these, these incredible women who come along and really are in a, in a lot of ways, kind of the power propelling these, artists to do the work that they do which is really incredible yeah absolutely let's talk about jb lee curtis for a moment yes the anti-lori strode here yeah coming i will talk i've got a theory we'll talk about that later but she's cast in this movie like carpenter basically throws her a bone because Mm -hmm. even after the success of halloween which again until the Blair Witch Project was the most successful independent film of all time. Mm -hmm. was John Carpenter's Halloween. And that would stand for 21 years, which is amazing when you think about it. Yeah. She is like getting a guest spot on the love boat. Like she's getting like roles like that. She doesn't have any major roles between this. I think she maybe had done prom night or prom night was coming. I think Prom Night is in there. I think Prom Night's 81. 81. So after So maybe the year after. So let me check here. 
Curtis yeah. is not okay. This is a year after. That's right with no, Leslie. Prom night, it, it, it's the fog prom night and terror train right in a row in 1980. Okay. So those are yep. all three 1980, but they come immediately after the fog. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. So she's not the lead in this movie. Like basically, he writes the role of Elizabeth for her just to make sure that she has some work. Which is great because she's awesome in this movie. Like you said, the anti Laurie Strode. She gets to show a little bit of range here, and she mm-hmm. she kind of gets to be Jamie Lee Curtis here, like that really kind of cheeky yeah. or uh, smart ass sense of humor. Like she gets to show that here. Are you weird? Thank God you're weird. Thank like- God you're weird. I got another line later that makes me laugh that we'll talk about that mm. just really cracks me up. Um, it's so weird. To think about that, like especially coming off her Oscar this year for Best Supporting Actress and the career that she's had over the past 40 plus years and how incredible, even though it often feels like she's scolding me as a horror fan, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm here for it. I don't care. I I love J.B. Lee Curtis. He's a joy. Um, Cundy is back to shoot the film after shooting Halloween. And even though this is another like low budget picture, like it comes in at about 1.1 million. Mm-hmm. He um, shoots it in 235 anamorphic because again, you're shooting on these sets, you're shooting in these practical locations. It makes sense to shoot it that way. You get a sense of the scope of the town and uh, Cundy would continue to work with Carpenter, I believe, all the way through. I put Halloween three, but I think it's the thing is where uh, they part ways. I'm looking that up now because I, I, I knew there was at some point there was some kind of a falling out between them. And I don't know what the cause was or anything else. But like, yeah, the, I, yeah, uh, the thing and season of the witch. Yeah. And that's pretty much the end of it. Yeah. Cundy, I mean, Cundy would move on and I, I mean, mean he becomes seen, but, Zemeckis's ooh, guy for yeah. a little while. Dante yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he was okay. You know, he did a little, little film called Jurassic Park. If you heard, don't of worry it. about Dean Cundy. Yeah, Dean Cundy's doing fine people. Dean it's it's just, okay. It just, can, can we make that a t-shirt? Please. See, don't, don't worry, worry about, about Dean Cundy. Cundy. <laughs> Dean Cundy's doing just fine. That's a t-shirt <laughs> idea. This is I a very it. loose episode, listeners. We're having fun before we get to some serious business later I mean, this summer. We we are we are the guys, Mike, who did the uh, the the TCM two episode. So mm-hmm. like we're we're gonna we're gonna have a goof. Could have a little and, fun. And look, there's no there's no adults around to rein us in. So it's no. pretty much just us off the no reservation at this point. Yeah. yeah, no one is here. Jessica suggested this episode, but unfortunately, she took ill and couldn't make it today. But she's like, "You gotta have me on for the fog." I'm like, "Absolutely." And she's been waylaid by illness. So we hope we're doing this justice. Like, I hope she's not listening to this Monday morning with clenched teeth. Oh, you motherfuckers. Like, I will murder the two of you. Jess, I am so sorry. (laughs) I apologize for nothing. Uh, All right. Let's talk about. Rightly so. So uh, most of the filming takes place on the Northern California coast in 79. Uh, Point Reyes was picked because it was the second foggiest location in the nation behind Mm -hmm. Nantucket, Massachusetts. Yay, Mass. We're number one once again. Um, Bodega Bay was used. uh, The scene where. Uh, Atkins and Jamie Lee are heading down the docks like that uh, is Bodega Bay where Hitchcock famously shot the birds, which was great. Um, 
couple locations I picked out specifically, the Episcopal, uh, Episcopal Church of the Ascension, uh, which still operates today. Like that was, they were shot on location there. It was built in 1888. That is in Southern California. It's actually near Pasadena. So if you wanted to do like a famous locations and horror movies, like little day trip, you could hit the Myers house, the Strode house, uh, Nancy's house from a nightmare in Elm street and this location all within a couple hours oh, of one yeah. another. So that, so maybe one day we, I have to do that. Yeah. Um, sounds like a bucket list item for sure. Yeah. And then the Antonio, the most famous location in this whole movie might be what was called the Antonio Bay gift corner. It's the supermarket at the beginning of the movie. That is the Laurel Canyon County store which uh, was built in 1900 and then rebuilt after fires in 1929. In the 1960s, it became a hotbed for musicians that were uh, in Laurel Canyon. Uh, Joni Mitchell, David Crosby, Frank Zappa, Bowie, Linda Ronstadt, uh, the Mamas and Papas. Like Those are just a few of the musicians that would hang out there. Like They would go to the shop, they would eat, they would smoke, they would like get out instruments and jam together they would get high together and then they'd go out and fuck i mean basically that was the place to go um the manson family would hang out there from like charlie manson a notorious like hanger on in the music scene who you think of how much history would change if somebody had given manson a recording contract like there would be you know, a huge, the ripple effect of that. Uh, I think Tarantino shot some of the stuff for once upon, uh, in hot, like the exteriors of it are used for mm. once upon a time in Hollywood as well. Oh, uh, a number of songs are written about this supermarket. Like Joni Mitchell writes ladies of the Canyon, uh, about like the women that she would meet and hang out with there. Uh, Nash from Krabby Stills, Nash and Young write Our House. Uh, the Doors, I think this might be the most famous song. They write Love Street about kind of the comings and goings that were going on in the market. Uh, Weird Al Yankovic, Rye of the Kaiser. Uh, little known fun fact, but I've been based on there. Um, and Jennifer Aniston, you know, before she became famous for Leprechaun and a little <laughs> Thank you show. for that. Yeah, you knew that was coming. In a little show called Friends. Have you heard of it? Oh, wait. Uh, she, Friends. She w- interesting. Yeah, interesting. Tell me about this thing called Friends. I've never heard of the concept. Um, she was a cashier there uh, when she moved out to Hollywood. So she had worked there. So that was the most famous location. Um Rob Bottin at 20 years old. He is brought on to do the special effects. And Carpenter sizes him up and... He's like, this dude is six five. Uh, mm. Can you play Blake, the head ghost pirate? So Botine gets to play that role. The movie comes out February first, nineteen eighty, and this is wild to me. It played in theaters for a hundred and fifty two weeks. Oh wow! Okay, and I just made a note like how because this is, I mean, pre home video market. Like movies right. would play in theaters they would get re-released in theaters so i don't know if that's 152 weeks straight um it rolled it wasn't like a massive rollout it did roll out to across the country at pretty slow pace i don't know if it would come and go for a bit um but how different 
times are now where now you have them like Fast 10 is already, I think, on digital or coming on digital in a week or two. Super Mario, which is still like a top five movie, you can buy it um, for digital right now, like three or four weeks after it hits theater Mm -hmm. theaters. And this like, oh, if you want to see it, you have to go to the theaters. Uh, You only have like a three year window to go see this movie. Right. So that to me is it's kind of amazing. Um, it's not as big of it's funny because when you watch the interviews, the, the uh, making of interviews with Carpenter and Hill and others, they talk about how they're all like a little bit disappointed in the reaction to this movie. Like, yeah, it wasn't as big of a hit as we thought. It made over 21 million in the U.S. alone. I don't have any international numbers on a one point one million dollar budget. They spent a few million on the marketing. I had read they would buy fog machines at like 350 bucks a pop to play in theaters just to kind of drum up interest as the movie was getting ready to roll out. But that's, oh, that's still fun. I like that. That is still like 20 times your budget mm-hmm. back on a movie in the US alone. The reviews were mixed. Um, they praised like the atmosphere, but said the story was pretty slight, which is it is, but it's a well told story. I don't think that's I think that's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, I don't think so either. And it's gone on. They've said to become like a cult hit, like where it's much beloved, which I would agree. Like this is a pretty beloved Carpenter movie. It's that that run from we'll even throw in like assault on Precinct 13. We'll start mm-hmm. with assault and go all the way, I would say, to uh, in the mouth of madness. Like it is just an unimpeachable run. Such, a, such an incredible Carpenter. run. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and Carpenter, last note here, he loves anthologies. Mm-hmm. He talked with Fango in the 90s about how he wanted The Fog to be an anthology series, which wouldn't it be about the pirates every time, but it would be about The Fog being this supernatural presence in all of these little towns and like what sort of things it would bring with them which to me sounds really terrible it sounds like not a good idea i kind of love that actually but that's because then you can place it in different parts of the different parts of the country right like you could have one set up around the nantucket area Mm -hmm. Uh, it doesn't always have to be antonio bay although i love antonio bay so much that i kind of want them to keep going back to antonio bay Mm -hmm. but Let's be honest. If this happens more than once, the people of Antonio Bay are getting the fuck out of Dodge. Yeah. Like around the time that Castle Rock was coming out on Hulu, the Stephen King anthology show, which kind of like uh, takes a worm's eye view of this one location from Stephen King's mythology. uh, I got an idea for a a John Carpenter-esque one called Antonio Bay set in this town where you know you get like maybe it's their sesquicentennial so it's their 150th and you get like all these people kind of coming back you bring back jamie lee curtis tom atkins maybe you bring in kurt russell and then you just like pepper in some easter eggs like maybe at the uh at the antonio bay gift store there's uh there's some sutter kane novels or Mm -hmm. you know maybe the pork chop express goes driving by in the background or there's a car parked on the street that looks just like christine like you kind of pepper in these other little stephen king easter eggs throughout but it's about this story of these people coming back to this town and something spooky happens again. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I thought that was kind of a fun idea to piggyback off of my ideas I had about 
Carpenter continuing things that probably don't need oh, to be continued yeah. from last well, week. But we didn't get an, an anthology series. We did get a remake uh, in 2005. <sighs> yeah. Back when everything uh, with I with a remake that I think essentially killed any momentum mm-hmm. that Tom Welling had in his career coming off of like Smallville, which was like a really fun take on young Superman. Like he's kind of a hot young performer. And then the fog, I've never seen the fog remake. Uh, I think it's one of those things where Carpenter produced it in name only. Mm -hmm. It was like, sure. I'll say good things about it up until it's released, you know, because the more people that see it, the more money I get, which again, good for John Carpenter get paid, sir. Um, I love that his cameo in this movie is basically a guy asking when he can get paid. Yeah. It's it's so fucking yeah. perfect. I love it's it really so good. much. Looking like a rock star too. Like looking Hell like yeah. like looking coming like out a to snack. be Yeah. Coming out to be uh you know, to like I gotta go to my gig like tuning guitars for ACDC at the Palladium. So Hell yeah. Um yeah, I never saw the fog remake. I just feel like it killed Tom and Wellings hit some hard times, like a little not really talked about, but he's got a addiction to like Hubble figurines that has prevented him from doing a lot of things. And it's a, you know, it's a secret shame that we probably shouldn't talk about here. But that is the background of the fog. Let's talk about the movie. And Steven, I've talked a lot for the past. Look. I love I love listening to your voice, Mike. I don't. <laughs> um, I don't, and I probably that Mike. is the yeah. So I apologize. <laughs> um, where do you want to go first? What do you want to? Oh talk man, about? What do you I like? don't. You pick. Uh, let you know. Let's let's jump into the let's jump into the the morality of the thing. Mm-hmm. Let's 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 go straight for for the judge because again, that's that's the thing that I that I found the most interesting on this rewatch, and it's kind of something that i've again i'm a big i'm a sucker for any time we can call like faith into question or or uncover the evils that the the church has done because like i i come from a religious background i have historically been a fairly religious person um that is not to say that anything the church has done is above reproach like um a lot of shit gets done in the name of god that is disgusting quite frankly and this is a perfect example of this kind of behavior where you've got this story about this ship and i mean i've been calling them ghost pirates but they're they're not really it's it's like a ship of lepers Mm -hmm. and and a man who's himself a leper who's who's trying to find them a place where they can basically have a home and instead of helping these people they intentionally shipwreck them and kill them and steal all of the gold that they were going to use to start their, their settlement and use it for a church, use it basically to start their own community. Um, and then on the hundredth anniversary of that, that founding of that event, um, the, the dead will rise and come back. What I love too, is you find the church even swindled the swindlers Mm -hmm. that all of the other parties of the massacre were 
they didn't get any of the gold. They were left like asking, where did it all go? Because like father Malone's, I guess would have been its grandfather Mm -hmm. um, hit it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and basically put it into the church. Like the, the implication at the end is that it's literally gone to specifically form this giant gold cross this this a solid gold cross that kind of is the focal point of the church um but like the church is built on lies deception and deceit and i mean when you look historically back through the various misdeeds of of the church to from everything from the crusades to televangelism like there is this undercurrent of deceit there's this lust for power that corrupts any good that that can be done through this organization through this through this church and so and and this church then becomes the central focal the kind of the center of this this small town and while we don't necessarily see that you historically the church has been kind of this central point for for most small town life and we have no reason to think that this would be other uh, now, of course, the the priest there is a complete drunk who, again, he's not really developed much as a character. Hal Holbrook is like fucking knocking it out of the park, though. Let's let's be real. Mm-hmm. But like, there's not much of a character there. He's just kind of this sad old drunk who has. Oh. No, go ahead. No, you first finish. No, I was just going to say he's, he's kind of this sad old drunk with this kind of. I don't even know if he knows much about the history or the origins of the thing because it doesn't seem like he does. No, until he's he reads caught unaware. He, no, yeah. no one had any idea until he finds his grandfather's diary. Right, but like he, but he's he's almost complicit by by blood. In mm-hmm. a, in a weird, at least that's kind of the idea that we that that seems to be what he thinks, and I think he kind of once he sees that once he realizes that i think he internalizes a lot of that uh which becomes i think the crux of his character for the rest of the film yeah carpenter isn't an overtly political director he's he's, i don't think overtly i think there's what you find in a lot of carpenter's best movies is a distrust of institutions I think you see that in Escape from New York, like a Mm -hmm. distrust of politics and politicians. Like they will accept you up to the point where they no longer need you. And then they will place themselves on a pedestal. Like you're seen as disposable ultimately. Right. Um, That's what like the tape is like such a MacGuffin. And that's why the end of that movie is so great where you have like Pleasance as a buffoon as the, Mm -hmm. as the president you see in this movie, like a distrust of the, concept of organized religion and also this idea of like celebrating basically celebrating american history i mean because like this the the founding of antonio bay before really 40 years before we would look at like really look at something like critical race theory which which takes a different look at United, the United States history, like really a more accurate look at United Correct. States history and, and looks at like, how was this country actually built? What was it founded on? And when you look at the history of the United States, it is often 
founded on the hard work of the oppressed. Blood and exploitation. With, right. Really before we would start looking that a lot more closely in modern times, Carpenter is like this story of Antonio Bay's founding is that history in a microcosm. Yeah. This idea that, and it's interesting, the leper colony, they were rich white men, but mm. they were, they were also like suffering from a horrendous disease that were trying to use their wealth to be, really just carve out a space for themselves and to live out their remaining days in some peace and some quiet and some dignity. Right. And instead you have, and it's in a matter of fact, you have it. They would have gotten the church would have gotten the money anyway, or Antonio Bay would have gotten the money anyway. It wasn't the fact that these lepers had money; like they were going to give them that money, is my understanding, in order to build their colony. But what Antonio Bay really couldn't stomach was the idea that just a few miles away from our settlement, we're going to be near a leper colony and we can't do that. So they have to be killed because they'll be seen as a blemish or a blight or something that is unclean. Exactly. That's ultimately why they're murdered. It's not for the money itself. It's for the no. fact of just their mere existence. Right. They are a marginalized group mm-hmm. based not on who they are as people, but on the affliction yeah. that they have. And therefore mm-hmm. they got to go. Yeah. You know, and Carpenter will continue this trend of like, tearing down institutions or satirizing institutions as well. And you see things like they live, which is a takedown of which consumerism would, and, and corporate culture, which is they wonderful. Live is pretty overtly political. Yeah. That's probably his most overt political. That's why I kind of raised my eyebrows a little bit when you said he's not over. I'm like, they live, sir, would like a word. Cause that mm-hmm. one is so like, that one is just fuck a big fuck you to Ronald Reagan. Basically. Sure. It absolutely is. And I think as the 80s wore on and this Reaganism, because this is still like Reagan would have been in office for what, like two weeks when this movie is actually released. So you're not really getting a chance. And even Escape from New York, uh, it's filmed during like the first year of Reagan's presidency. Mm-hmm. And then, then as you saw the 80s go on and you saw like the mismanagement or really the purposeful mismanagement of things like the AIDS crisis, you see unions getting busted and the power of unions becoming weaker. You're seeing trickle down economics put into place and a growing divide between the rich and the poor, which I think is continued to this day. Like that chasm only gets wider every single year. I feel some one star reviews coming when like the (laughs) rare conservative is like, why are they talking about politics? Um, I I love the the notion that oh we're we're reading politics into this movie where they're clearly intended given mm-hmm. what we know about Carpenter and right. how outspoken he is on mm-hmm. this shit like this stuff has always been political right. you you just didn't notice it when you were a kid that's but, why you don't think it ever was but he's not someone that's going to like go out and beat that drum he's not no. someone that's going to go talk about it in the press he's not going to like have someone say like the a character's not going to like take center stage, have a giant spotlight on them and say the church is horrible and they need to be dismantled. Like that's not what's going to happen here. Like he trusts his audience enough to make those inferences and kind of think for themselves. Or if you just want to see it as a really cool ghost story, then that is okay too. And um, yeah, that a hundred percent. And 
yeah, I don't think Carpenter is going to go out of his way to to say, oh, well, this is what I intended by that. Mm-hmm. He's going to be like, what, what did you not watch the movie? Because yeah. it's, it's there. Yeah. Like that, that seems more kind of his thing. Or, you know, if you ask him about what he thinks politically, he'll tell you what an idiot Trump is and move on or something, yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. But you're not going to see um, someone and they live with like a Mondale Ferraro shirt. You know what I mean? No. Like nothing like that is going to ever no. happen. Um, Great poll, by the way. Are they? Thank you. I, you mentioned how how uh, Holbrook. I love how Holbrook. What a time when you're thinking about like these studios are probably sitting around like a large conference table. They've got their cigars. They've got their whiskey. Their executive assistants are like ordering lunches and they're like thinking of casting and they're thinking like we need somebody. Like we've got like a big picture coming out. It's a horror movie. Horror is huge. We got the guy that did like the Halloween movie. The kids are going to love him. Got that long hair and shit. We need someone that is going to pull the teens in. We need someone that's going to get like the dates in on a Friday night and they're going to jump. They're going to scream. They're going to come <laughs> back for more. Who do we get to open this movie? And you get, Who else? You get that the head of the studio picks up the phone hits the button to his his assistant and says, get me Hal fucking Holbrook on the phone. Fuck yes. Okay, Mark <laughs> Twain himself. Oh, I God. love it. I He's love so it. He's so good. Like, yeah. He's so good. Oh, mm-hmm. God. Yeah, no. I love, and I, yeah, you're right. Like, why, why are we picking Hal? Because in, in 80, he's, mm-hmm. he was born in 25. Like, he's, <sighs> he is like, He's pushing. He's pushing. Yeah. He's in his mid fifties at this point. Yeah, he is older here than Wilford Brimley was in the thing. Amazing. He looks it. He does. You know? Now it would be like we need uh, someone a bit older with some gravitas to play the priest. Like, get me one of the Chris's. Like, get me Hemsworth. Yes. What's Chris Hemsworth up to? What's Chris Pine doing? He can play a hot priest. Exactly. And that's 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 what it would be now. It would be the right. hot priest. Yeah, a hot priest that fucks. You know, that would be <laughs> the fog was remade again <laughs> in 2024. Hot priest that fucks, yes. <laughs> but I just love that like the first two adults you see in this movie that is aimed for like the teenage audience, mm-hmm. you get John Houseman. Yep. You get big house, you know, you know, the big, running big things. house himself, <laughs> right? And Hal Holbrook, and you're like, the teens are going to love it. The teens Hell are yeah. going to eat it up. I mean, the I so I saw Holbrook in another movie in the pandemic called Wild in the Streets, mm-hmm. which was released in '68, which is about a, a a kid who basically is sick of old people running things and decides to run for president. He's like in his 20s, decides to run for president, and Holbrook is like his. Kane Payne manager is so like trying Holbrook to control plays him. the kid. <laughs> no, Holbrook, Holbrook, Holbrook is fully an adult at that point. It's like the don't trust anyone over 30 thing. And I mean, he's born in 25. So in 68, he's, he's in his forties, mm-hmm. like at that point. Right. So like he's, but no, he's, he's fully an adult and like, he's the guy who's like trying to like get in good with, and like try to, to help him succeed. And it, I mean, it's it's a wild movie. Like, it's I don't know that it's a good movie, but it's a fucking wild watch. Okay. And Holbrook is really good in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, and it's like it's kind of like the '60s counterculture. But like, how far do we push it? Because then at the end, these twenty-somethings talk down to this like ten-year-old, and he goes, "Just you wait till I'm president," and you get the idea that like he's gonna run for president. And then you've got like a 
a, a little kid president and like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole thing, but like, Oh, anyone over 30 is like put in like a, basically a, a forced retirement home, almost concentration camp kind of thing. Like it's, oh, Jesus. it's, okay. it's fucked. I mean, it's I have, 68. So go figure, but I have another one hard target in the wild in the streets today. Yeah. So there you go. Which is also the name of like an awesome circle jerks song as well. <laughs> I'm glad you, I'm glad you finished with song. Cause I was about to say, wait, what are we talking about? Yes. So <laughs> Um, yeah, I, we use the word like, ah, he's like the town drunk. I mean, there are mentions like, well, let's just hope he's not in his cups. I love that little reference from Janet Lee's character. Let's just hope he's not in the cups today, which is a really wonderful, nice way of saying it's hope he's, but he's a very, bring that back. Yeah. He's a very good natured person. He's Mm. a moral person and he is like really the only one everybody else is kind of like, there's not much we can do about this. We have this big event tonight. Let's put off thinking about this till later on um, because we have this big event. To re- I love the little interaction when Janet Lee asks, you know, are you still going to deliver the benediction? And he's like, this town was founded on the blood of the innocents. And Nancy Loomis is like, well, I'll take that as a no. Uh, <laughs> as, Nancy Loomis is not like a terrific actor. I mean, she's not, she's not terrible, but she's not fantastic. But what, if you need someone to deliver something really deadpan, Mm -hmm. call her in. Like, she's like, I've got this. She's fantastic at like these deadpan lines. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think she benefits here. Like Nancy Loomis is, and I think at the time she was married to uh, Wallace, um, who is editing the, film or they were together tommy wallace i believe they were together and married and you know she was also part of the package with carpenter's little troop for a bit all the way up through halloween three i think that's and, right and again not someone who's amazing with a lot of range but very good at delivering like some deadpan humor now and right. again so um also, what a different time it is. I was thinking of the John Houseman we've been. So Houseman scene oh, was, let's talk about why this was a- added to the movie. Because what I think is fascinating is the original cut of this movie is 80 minutes long. Mm-hmm. And you know, Carpenter like shoots it. He hands it off to Tommy Wallace. He's like, go ahead and put it together. I'll be back after my holiday. Let me know what you think. And he walks into the, to the editing bay. And he asks Tommy, how's my picture coming along? And Wallace just kind of gives him a look like a, and Carpenter's like, oh shit. Mm -hmm. Like he knew like just from the look in Wallace's face, like we don't have a winner here. Uh, And Carpenter's like, it was a learning experience for him. He's like, this is a very, the movie is all mood, but there's no explicit gore in this cut. There's no jump scares. um, And it's only about 80 minutes. So, They add the prologue. It's shot on a soundstage in California with John Houseman, which, again, much different time. Parents are like, let's leave our younglings with this like 70-year-old bachelor septuagenarian (laughs) who's going to keep them out till midnight and tell them ghost stories. Let's do that. no additional supervision. Yeah, Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. How are these kids getting home? Right? Because like the... like. It's a small town. They can walk, right? Like Stevie's kid, like she's 
at the radio station for another mm-hmm. hour. So this boy is wandering the streets at midnight to get yep. home. Like, what mm-hmm. the fuck? Crazy. He's wild in the streets, Mike. He's wild. <laughs> wow. Love it. I mean, yeah, it's and, and and she asked him about it the next day and he's like, oh, it was great. He told us he told us a bunch of ghost stories. It was awesome. Yeah, he said there's certain things he said I can't talk about, though. He said, if I talk about certain things, mommy will get hurt in and then Stevie just lit up a butt and said, all right, that's all right. I guess you can't talk about what you can't talk about. I Sure. Whatever. I, I got to go. Makes sense, I guess. I got to get yeah, to work. I got to get to work. Play that smooth jazz. <laughs> um, but even like, it's fascinating that like two years out from Halloween and even before Friday the 13th comes out, Carpenter's like, all right, audiences tastes have evolved. Uh, Hill mentioned Scanners by... David Cronenberg specifically is a movie. Mm. that's a lot more explicit and that's what audiences wanted. So they go back and they reshoot and add a number of scenes to get the running time up over 90 minutes. And they add this prologue with Houseman and all of the stuff that is in like the, like the town going a little bit haywire. Um, They redo the boat scene a bit as well with the three fishermen that are out Mm -hmm. there. So it's like a lot more visceral. Uh, Their deaths are a lot more visceral. The morgue scene is added in uh, and uh, Barbeau like fighting off the um, pirates as well is added. Like that whole thing wasn't in the original cut of the movie. So they want to make it a bit scarier and a bit more, to what the audiences would have been looking for. And I think that's really kind of like fascinating. Like even because it's famously went back and reshot a lot of Halloween two after Rosenthal had wrapped the movie. He's like, this movie's not scary at all. Like this is like Bambi. And he added a lot more explicit gore intention in that one. Um, right. Which is to make that like play out more with what audiences would want after like a Friday the 13th had kind of come and it really thrilled audiences. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's, I think it's interesting just how horror as a genre evolves in such a very short amount of time that Halloween, which is this very almost bloodless atmospheric mood movie set in the suburbs, which I think was one of the most revolutionary things about mm-hmm about halloween it kind of takes the world by storm and by two years later 1980 we're you know throwing gore into halloween 2 and we're having to re-edit um the fog to make sure that it's it's a little more in keeping and i mean there's still not a lot of action there's not a lot of, of of there's no gore in this whatsoever like it's it's still very atmospheric, which I think is something Carpenter does very well as a filmmaker. Yeah. It's just, you know, you, you add in those moments of action and those moments of tension that kind of help again, enhance that mood that's already there. Yeah. It really mirrors the structure of Halloween and that mm-hmm. you have like, there's not an opening kill in this movie per se, but you have like that scene around the campfire and then the comings and goings in the town to set the mood for like, this is the kind of mood you're going to get for the rest of this movie. And then the next nearly an hour is a lot of setup, just like Halloween. Like that first hour is mostly set up Michael lurking in the shadows. Like there's nothing explicit for a lot of this movie that goes on. That's horribly wrong, but you get that 
sense of unease. You get that sense of like dread tension that's getting going on. And then the last 20 to 30 minutes of the movie, your real horror elements kick in. And it's in a lot of ways, it mirrors what Carpenter had done two years prior with Halloween, just in terms of the structure and the pace, except instead of being focused almost solely on Laurie, Mm. uh, as Halloween is, you have like a really great ensemble in this movie. Exactly. Which is really cool. Let's yeah. Let's talk the ensemble. Who do you want to, who do you, what you pick you? Who do you want to let, on? let's start with, let's start with JLC. Let's, let's, let's go, go for the big fish. Like right mm. away. Like she, God, so good in this movie. And again, very much the anti Laurie Strode, Laurie Strode, of course, the virginal lead of Halloween, uh, the first thing that you, or I guess the second scene that she's in, she's, you know, naked in bed next to uh, also naked Tom Atkins. Mm-hmm. And he, and he turns to her or she turns to him and goes, so what's your name? Like Lori Strode doesn't do that. Like that's like, again, very unlike anything that we had seen from her and very against what she had seen, what she had done in, in Carpenter's previous film, which I love, like, Here's again, it's it, like you said earlier, this is more the Jamie Lee. This is more her sense of humor, kind of the person that she was. And I know now we've kind of come back to that whole like her having sex has nothing to do with the reason she lived in that movie. Uh, but she lives in this movie. And the first thing she does is have sex. So, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, clearly the, the morality is not what's at play here, even though that becomes yeah. kind of the trope surrounding that character. Yeah. And the interplay with her, like her and Tom Atkins have a great chemistry between them. Um, when yeah. they're driving, do you think, like you mentioned before, like, are you weird? And he's like, yes, yes, I am. And then the, when she gets in the car, the first thing he does is like hands her an open Budweiser. Like, Hey, yeah. here you go. Like a little drinking and a little DUI. Uh, to Thought this was your first time hitchhiking sips beer. Yes. From can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but you see, like you see, uh, and he's and I love his name in this movie. Atkins character is named Nick Castle right. after uh, Carpenter's buddy uh, Nick Castle, who played the Shape in 1978. Right. Which again, just fun little nods like that in this in this movie, especially like in 1980. Who would have known? Like, oh yeah, Nick Castle, the guy that played the Shape. Like that wouldn't have been a thing like it is today. Um, just like him like drinking a beer mm-hmm. driving through the town and you don't feel like oh how dare he drinks a beer it's like no it's just like a blue collar dude that is like out and about like what yeah let him have his small his town pop. one in the morning like yeah, who cares why yeah. not the, what really got me is when she tells him like oh you're my 13th ride he's like oh great unlucky i'm unlucky right. and she looks at like, and she looks at him and goes we'll see I love that, you know, so that good. kind of like so good. hint of sexuality that's there, that hint of flirtation. It's not forced. He doesn't come off as a creep. If anything, like, no, he's fending her off a little bit. Yeah. And, um, I wonder, though, like, you know, Tom Atkins, who he is the founder of the Atkins diet, which is Marlboro Reds, whiskey <laughs> and pussy. That is the <laughs> Atkins diet as it was originally God bless you, Tom Atkins. If he's like, God love you. If he was like, John, we got to, I know the scenes aren't in the movie, but I want to go method here. Jamie and I have to fuck. Like, we just have to. It really is going to be. I was like, no, like Carpenter's like, no, Tom, we don't. He's like, no, really, I think it'll, 
really, really help out. my character. I think it'll, we're going <laughs> method here. I want, you know, like, want to go for the full Brando with this here. Right. So come on. So <laughs> you're right. Like the next scene is the two of them in bed, like no seduction, nothing whatsoever. And it's just very natural. And they're, and they don't even know each other's names. That's, nope. that's, that's the best part is like, they're naked in bed, clearly mm-hmm. post-coital. And she's like, so what's your name? And, and like, that's the first line of the scene. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, perfect cut print, no notes. Yeah. Um. So here's my fun theory. Okay. Oh, this oh, is I, 1980. Yes. Okay. This is Laurie Strode. Okay. After the events of Halloween, cause we, and then we're going to, we're going to do the Halloween, Halloween to Halloween H2O timeline here. Okay. Poor Danielle Harris. Poor Danielle. Danielle Harris, she's getting the short end here. Okay. Lori, after the events of Halloween and Halloween two says, I got to get out of, I got to get out of Haddonfield. Like there's nothing good for me here. I got to go. Starts and you know she's being the good girl that she is, being the straight A student, the straight lace student, the person who not even, not even like a boy that's interested in her. Like she's like, no, I can't go to the dance with him. Like Ben Tramer interested in me, can't do it. She does the Costanza. She pulls a George Costanza and says, "Every instinct I've ever had, his you know, has been wrong. I've been the good girl my whole life. I've played by the rules." And I almost got murdered by a maniac and all of my friends are dead. I am going to do the opposite of what all my instincts say. So now she's hitchhiking. She's getting in cars with strangers. She's drinking beer she, while driving. She's having sex with strangers. She doesn't even know their names. Okay. She's, and she tells Atkins, you like, you know, like I've seen some weird shit everywhere I've gone. I see weird things. Where is she from? She's from Pasadena. Where is Halloween filmed? Pasadena. H2O rolls around. And I would say that, you know, Tom Atkins in this movie, like uh, Nick Cave, bit of a smart ass. Mm-hmm. Bit of a take no, doesn't take no for an answer type of guy. A little bit take charge. Halloween H2 rolls around. It's 1998. There's a 17-year-old boy named John, played by one Josh Hartnett who gets his smart-ass mouth from his dad's side of the family. John is the love child between <laughs> Elizabeth and the Fog, Elizabeth and Alias for Laurie Strode, and uh, Nick Castle, played by Tom Atkins in this movie. That is who John is. Like, this is Laurie Strode. And weird shit just keeps following her everywhere she goes. That's insane. It is. You're you're a madman, and I love you for it. It works. Timeline works. It does actually yeah. remarkably well. Yeah. And then where is Lori when we see her in H two O? She's uh, living under another assumed alias mm-hmm. in California. Yeah, we know she changes her name. Like I change my underwear like once a decade. Nineties <laughs> roll around, you know. Well, you know, people start asking questions, and you gotta like cut that cut that yeah. off at the pass. So yeah. yeah, yeah, because Elizabeth and Nick have a dead priest on their hands at the end it's a headless priest and right. elizabeth rolled into town like she's got a, some questions that she that that sheriff might want to know he was on top of things so mm-hmm. you know he seemed very competent um i really just want to see now i want to see a movie with josh hartnett judy greer and daniel harris playing siblings oh just someone someone make that and then maybe cast jamie lee curtis as their mom mm-hmm. 
just someone please make that happen. Yeah. Let's talk about Tom Atkins of this. What do you make of his Nick Castle man of action in this movie? Uh, there's really just one thing missing um, in his performance in this movie. And that is that that is that push broom, baby. Mm-hmm. I, I need that mustache. Like Tom Atkins without a mustache is like a day without sunshine. Yeah, it's scary. It is. It's it's weird. It really is. It's so weird because now it's just like it's just part of the fabric. But like if you and if you go back and watch some of his early films, he's not he doesn't have it. I don't I don't think he has it in uh, in Escape either. I don't think he has it now. Did he shave it? Oh, Tom, I, no. I listeners oh, like tell so. me if I'm wrong. I think he's mustacheless now. I mean, his IMDb profile picture is definitely him rocking the stash. Yeah. So I like it's that. Like, are mustaches like the male head of hair? I should know this. I'm going to embarrass myself here. Can you go mustache bald? Like, can you just lose the ability to grow a mustache as you age? I mean, I know some people just are physically unable to grow mm-hmm. mustaches. So I know that's true. But I don't know. I, I don't know if that's that's a thing or not. I did not think we'd be talking about whether or not you could go mustache bald. I'm gonna I'm gonna Google mustache baldness right now. All right, please do that. And while you do that, I will sing a little sea shanty. No, let's talk about while you do that. Um, the real star of this movie, I think, is is obviously Adrian Barbeau as oh, yeah. Stevie, who is this is an evolution of the final girl character. You know, whereas like Lori in some ways is very passive. Like she's reacting to being attacked by the shape in Halloween in very smart ways, which is why we love her. Right. This is like Adrian Barbeau. Stevie is much more of like a heroine in this movie. Like she is using the tools at her disposal, which in this case are like the broadcast signal of the, of WKAB or KAB to keep the townspersons up to date and as safe as possible. Right. And that voice. Oh, that voice. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she she did like model her voice after some other, you know, late night DJs. Um, and God, yeah, just if you didn't think she was sexy before. I don't I defy you to watch this movie. No. and think that she's not. Um, but no, she's much more proactive. And I also like the idea of her being separate from a lot of the action for for a good chunk of the movie, too, where she is. She, in, in a way she's reacting, but like she's putting out the call, like go here, stay out of here. Someone get my son. Here's my, here's my home address, everyone in town. Mm-hmm. So in case you didn't know where I live now, you know, like, cause you see like the lecherous fisherman on the boat and earlier in the movie kind of talking about, you know, how, how sexy she is and oh yeah, you really like to get with her. Oh wait, I thought you were happily married. Well, not that happy. Like all that, Love that line. <laughs> all that bullshit like but you know oh but but again when her when her child is in danger put out the call right like and and of course who answers the call tom atkins baby well she does put out the call to rescue her son she ain't driving out there you know you could she even once she puts out the call she does leave it to change even after the fog leaves like she's still like i should go and find my son but before i do that another Mm -hmm. smooth another smooth jazz block well i mean mike there's like 600 stairs to get down to that lighthouse where the radio station is like she would have to climb 
all those stairs just to get to her car. And by that point, I mean, she's ready for bed. Yes, like, she could, I, would you, if you thought your dog was in danger, mm-hmm. would you run after it? Would you run after the, out into the fog to rescue your dog? I'd like to think I would. Yeah. And this is her child. Yeah. Now that kid did wake her up like bright and That's early true. in the morning. And yeah. Like, Mommy don't have time for this right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which, I think the line is Andy, I love you, but you're a, you're sure you sure are a pain sometimes. Something, yes. something like that. Yeah. Which I think any parent can relate to that line. Like I think all of us can relate to that. Be even, even if we were all kids once, I think we could all relate to being that lovable, but a pain. Um, but I, I just, I, that was my bread and butter when I was a child. Yeah. As just, obnoxious as I am now, I've learned yeah. to temper that a lot. Yeah. But I love this idea of like, my son is in danger. He needs to be rescued, but I can't leave because who's going to play, you know, some Miles Davis? Like the town needs its Miles Davis like, right now. Look, some things are some things are really, truly important. And we we need to recognize that. Um, no, I. And I also, but, but again, that, that, that increases the tension, right? Cause she's not it, like, it's two different movies, right? So like, if, if this is just her movie, if she is the final girl, then yes, she would absolutely leave that radio station, drive to her house and rescue her son right in the nick of time, mm-hmm. but it's an ensemble. And so we've got a lot of, a lot of irons in the fire. So we pass that to someone else and she remains kind of for lack of a better term, the woman in the chair um, through most of this movie, kind of at her post, watch literally watching the fog come in, getting the updates from her skeevy weather, weatherman. Friend. Oh, I love their interplay. I don't find it skeevy. Okay. I, do, what, I what, what, what makes you, what makes you feel that skeevy? I don't know. I just like just the idea of some of, I, I'm not, I'm not that overt of a flirt when mm-hmm. I, when I do flirt. Um, so any, anytime someone's like overtly flirting, I'm just kind of like, like, it just kind of reads as it reads as like a little much for me. But I then again, like he, I also can't read signals for shit. Yeah. So I feel like he doesn't cross lines. Do you know what I mean? I feel like right. he's respectful of, and maybe uh, again, like I haven't had to flirt with someone in 20 years at this point. So I know that, things have changed like as we record this this is my 17th wedding anniversary today so i'm spending it with you steven um great um you know it it just it feels like there's a lot of like he loves how carpenter loves howard hawks he Mm -hmm. loves strong women and he wrote stevie as like a hawksian type of character like someone hawks would be like yep this fits my mold And she's very good at rebuffing, like, nope, my idea of a perfect man is a voice at the end of the phone line. Like, she's very good, but she likes the interplay between the two. Maybe that pushback is why I thought maybe a little Mm -hmm. skeevy, because she's kind of like, no, let's not, let's not push your luck here, partner. Like, no. Um, I like his one. Oh, you take something. Did you take a little something? Like, does it make you feel a little weird? Like, I love it. I think I like that line more than when he plays Bracken and it's like, you know, everyone's entitled to one good scare. I think the way he delivers it, does it make you feel a little funny? Uh, it's great. It's a really great delivery. And, you know, I think the one thing you're right on, he is your he toxic masculinity. 
is what kills him. Like he doesn't listen to Stevie. Right. And because he's the one character that doesn't listen to Stevie, he gets killed. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of the, one of the six. Yeah. Yeah. One for all the co-conspirators. So. Yeah. And they, they do kill others. Like if you get in the way, like they will kill you. Um, they seem like they're actively going after a few people though. Like it feels like yes. they're knocking on a couple doors. Like they knock on Tom Atkins's door. They knock mm-hmm. on her door, like her, the door of her home. So like it, it feels like they are going but it doesn't feel intentional who they're targeting really. Okay. This is a good time to bring this up. Um, number one, is this a ghost story? Mm. Cause we call it a ghost and Carpenter says, I wanted to do a ghost story. Um, but they knock on doors. They can't just pass through walls. Like you have to let them in. You have to actually like if, if they don't open the door, it's like, well, I guess we're just going away. We'll knock on another door. Right. Um, they're corporeal. Yeah. Mm. What are they? Uh, I mean, and so my read personally is that different authors can personalize a monster's mythology to suit their needs. Uh, And we've seen this recently with vampires, like the vampire mythology, the way that it's evolved over the years from, from its, its very basic origins to now, like Bram Stoker's Dracula, like Bram Stoker's novel Dracula. I don't think as far as I know, there's nothing about vampires not being able to go into the sunlight. And now that's like a hard line rule, like vampires don't go in the sunlight. And then Stephanie Meyer's like, well, what if they just twinkle? Mm-hmm. Like, so we, we can we can kind of play with the mythology right. and the rules of these different monsters and these right. different creatures. So for me, I see no problem with ghosts being able to uh, interact corporeally with the world around them and not, you know, being able to and walk through walls because you, you hear about hauntings being limited to a specific place or a specific thing you see like ghosts being able to lift objects throw things across rooms open cabinets like there are certain levels with which they are able to interact Mm -hmm. with the physical world but it's just to what extent they do and what rules do and do not bind them i mean for all we know these these ghosts or whatever they are, are legitimately relatively moral people so maybe it's it's rude to walk into a house if you're not if the door isn't mm-hmm. open for you and then of course once you do maybe then you can you know yeah. bust things up a little bit although they do break a window and like try to unlock the door at one point which i i cackled i cackled with glee when i saw that so i don't know for me I think the rules can change. And I think for Carpenter, these are ghosts, but they're, they're ghosts that behave in a different way than say, maybe the classic ghosting, you know, face shifting through walls kind of thing. That's, that's my take. I, I think part of the charm of this movie and part of what makes it such a great B movie. And again, my, my take in Carpenter is like, he makes B movies with an A level of talent like okay. that. And I'm, and I'm taking that line from the horror, et cetera, podcast. Um, mm. The first horror podcast I ever listened to, like way back in the 2009 or 10 or whatever, they would say that when they would talk about Carpenter. Um, I don't think he gives a shit about the rules. I just think that like, because there are really no set rules in this movie. It's like whatever the scene needs to be scary mm-hmm. right now, uh, the like, all right, they're only going to be around till one o'clock in the morning. 
that's it. But like the reason they disappear at the end of this movie isn't because it's one o'clock. It's because like he gets his hand on the Blake gets his hands on the gold cross. But then they come back after the fact. It's like, right. Well, it, we needed it for this scene. We had to put um, Nick and Elizabeth in danger and then take them out of it right away. Mm-hmm. Um, we needed to knock on the door but then we can kind of go in the door when the little boy is hiding later on down the road. Like whatever is going to make the scene work is what we're going to do at this moment. The fog is going to do whatever we need it to do in order to just be like super creepy. Like you get the idea that they're attacking Stevie because they know that she's warning people. Like, why are they coming after her? Well, she's warning them. Mm -hmm. Why do they go after the little, uh, her son? It's because, he has a little piece of the boat and they want it back. Like it's whatever logic you need at that moment. Um, And that works. Like I'm fine with that. I'm fine with it. Not necessarily making a ton of sense because it's a campfire story. At the end of the day, you see that right at the beginning of the movie with, with big house, it's a campfire story. The, and yeah, and I think if we remade that today, like we would name all six of the conspirators and the ghosts would track them to hunt them down one by one. And they'd have to put that puzzle together like we would add that dimension to it. And Carpenter just is not interested in that at all. He's just interested in telling a cool ghost story. And I think it's better for it. I agree. You know, no, I completely agree. Right. I think it's much better for it. And I was recently listening to like a uh, review of the boogeyman, like the new movie that came out from Rod Savage, which I liked like three star movie. Like I think it's a four star movie. If you haven't watched a lot of horror movies, like if you're a 13 year old and you're just starting, like it's a great starter, little horror movie. It does what a lot of other movies have done, just not quite as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the complaints was like, well, we don't really get an explanation for why they said this or how to like, I don't really care. You know, I don't necessarily need like a, it's the boogeyman. I don't need like a huge backstory on it's like, nope, you got to fight it and kill it in whatever. I don't need like a research at the library scene. Um, yeah. To give me that that's I'm okay with it. And I'm okay and, with like, what's going to serve the story and make it lean and mean. And, and us not seeing that doesn't make whatever character a Mary Sue or whatever the fuck nerds on the internet like to complain mm-hmm. about like you know there there's a degree of suspension of disbelief that we need to kind of bring into something and there's a difference between over explaining mm-hmm. something and not thinking about something mm-hmm. like there, there's a fine line in between there to where yes we've thought about this or you know what this isn't important this does not impact the story that i want to tell so i left it out yeah. and i think that's what we see here versus well, you know, nerds on the internet are going to complain about shit, so I need to over-explain. Carpenter could give two shits about nerds yeah. on the internet. I am, especially in 1980, when there's no internet. Especially uh, in 1980, yeah. yeah. He's like not thinking one day, 20 years from now, people are going <laughs> to... Um, I am much happier to spend an extra five minutes with Janet Lee as Miss Williams and uh, Nancy Loomis as Sandy. I yeah. am much happier to see the two of them as Nancy's essentially her chauffeur and go and assistant watching them interplay with one another because they have a very great, not quite mother daughter, but like um, auntie niece relationship. Such great repartee. Mm -hmm. 
like the you're the only person who can make a yes ma'am sound like a screw you Mm -hmm. god i love that line so much and she follows it up with that very Mm -hmm. very like yeah okay yes ma'am but then you have like later on when sandy is like miss williams like you've lost your husband you've done everything you can do today please let me take you home like there's an amount of care there in that relationship and i think part of what elevates this movie from like yeah it's a good ghost story to like this is a stone cold classic goat story and one of Carpenter's fine. The reason why we chose this one out of the many great standalone Carpenter movies is I feel like even though these interactions are very short and to the point, I feel like I have such a developed look at who all of these characters are, including the three doofuses on the boat who like, we're going to go out, we're going to just have some drinks Mm-hmm. We're going to talk some shit and then we're mm-hmm. going to, we, when we're drunk enough, we're going to come back home. Exactly. You, know? you said it like the, like, I thought you were happily married and not that happy. Right. Right. <laughs> That's, I mean, and how, how much do you think Jaws influenced that scene in particular, or the, the whole, like the boat and the seaside community? How much do you think Jaws influenced that? Because this is 1980. This is just a few years after Jaws. Like I don't know. I know Carpenter hated shooting on the water and said he would never do it again after getting Spielberg too. Yeah. (laughs) So, but I think to a degree, sure. I mean, you have like three guys out, um, all in all in checkered checkered plaid shirts. You know, they're Mm -hmm. out there drinking beer and having tickle fights. As far as I'm concerned, (laughs) right? You know, that's what they're doing out there. Absolutely. Like it, it's, it's, yeah, it's absolutely phenomenal. And again, it, it makes Antonio Bay feel lived in. It's, it's a real, like I said, you know, before, and it's, it is a cliche and I hate saying it, but it's things like that are what makes this, the town of Antonio Bay feel like a character Mm -hmm. in this movie. It feels, and I would say more so than Haddonfield's or really any other location that, that Carpenter uses, this feels like a real place. Mm -hmm. This feels like, like, and it, and part of that is that he does go into the history, that he does introduce you to all of these little people throughout the town. Like it, it, it reminds me. I've been reading Salem's Lot mm-hmm. uh, on recommendation of our mutual friend Jen Adams, mm-hmm. um, and it reminds me a lot of Salem's Lot in that that is not a town, that is not a story just about one or a story just about one person. It's a story yeah. about an entire town, and I feel like this movie could have been called the bay Mm -hmm. just as easily as it could have been called the fog because it is about this place more than it is about the nemesis really Mm -hmm. yeah and that nemesis is the fog and i love how it's used here in what you know all practical effects which Mm -hmm. had to and you know the fog and mist notoriously difficult to control like not an easy thing and kind of ingenious how they do it in that Mm -hmm. they, you know, photograph all of the exteriors, like they're using real places here. And then they go and on a soundstage, build like the outlines of them, like using cardboard and black cloth. Uh, So they relay it out and then using dry ice um, and backlighting it, getting that really eerie, mystical effect so that the fog is able to kind of maneuver through the recreation of these buildings and then you superimpose them and you have that look you have that really eerie glowing dense look of the fog where because on its own like fog is not 
necessarily i love to be quite honest i love fog i love the look of it i being a ghost story person myself mm-hmm. the other day like i actually pulled over driving home because there's like this open field and like the moon was just coming out and it looked gorgeous i'm like i just stopped for a minute just to kind of you know knowing we we're going to cover this movie i'm like god damn uh, i should have taken some pictures i should have taken some snaps Hell yeah. um it just looks gorgeous here. It looks so beautiful. And I love how uh, it's all laid out. Yeah. I I mean, being from the Midwest, not as much fog, although there have been a few instances where mm-hmm. I've just kind of walked out and it's just been fog. Yeah. And I, it's so atmospheric. It's so cool. Um, one of my favorite standups, uh, Susie Eddie Izzard uh, did a bit about when she was in uh, San Francisco about, uh, how she didn't think that the fog from John Carpenter's The Fog was actually how fog moved. And mm-hmm. she's like, and then I came here and that's that's actually how it works. Like it just comes like just rolling in like that. And it's like in it, the way that they were able to do that with just, again, fog machines and fans and probably a bunch of cigarettes like is really fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You look at the behind the scenes stills and it's just a bunch of burly dudes holding like the kind of machines you would get now at spirit Halloween. Yes. Basically Carpenter was like, Hey, how are you going to make this work? Like he had no idea. And they're like fog juice. Like, Oh, all right. (laughs) And as someone who has once owned like several jugs of fog juice, it's Mm -hmm. a real thing. You can actually buy it, pour it in those machines and it just puts out like it's, it's great. Yeah. So you, you see that at work and it's great. And then at the end when it's receding, that is just like shot in reverse and it's like uh, everything is done backwards. And then he just runs the film reverse through the projector. And he had to tell like Adrian Barbeau, like, look, what you need to be careful of is not just like your emotions when you're, you know, showing, going from, terror to relief you got to go from relief to terror but you Mm -hmm. have to be very careful about not blinking because it's done in reverse it's going to look very strange it's gonna look you know not good um which is i mean i there's a on the the 4k that i bought there's a a featurette where it's literally carpenter in front of like a little tube television probably mm -hmm. from like 2003 and he got this little tube TV and it looks like it's hooked up to a VCR and he's just mm-hmm. leaning over it. And it's literally just him leaning over the TV going, oh, yeah, OK, so see here, this is where like they had to reverse to go. So really, mm-hmm. this is a reverse shot. This is another reverse. And it's like pointing out all the yeah. reverse shots. And it's I, I'm just like cackling partly because it's just old man Carpenter and like a sweater leaning over a TV. And mm-hmm. then also just because of how how he's just so blithely talking about something mm-hmm. that probably was very difficult to execute yeah and just talking about it like it's nothing yeah i love watching like watching carpenter interviews and Mm -hmm. you know his his commentary tracks tend to be more loosey-goosey like him and kurt russell on commentary are just like two buddies getting together to talk about the fam and what's up with the kids and i love that and carpenter's still giving him shit for doing captain ron I love yes. I love that so much. I love hearing him talk about his movies because he's obviously very proud of his work. He knows his place in cinema history. He's a scholar of like 50s and 60s cinema and genre cinema. And he's not arrogant. Like there's no arrogance. Like he's so matter of fact. And when I 
with Carpenter, like he obviously worked, especially during this 10 year run in the genre almost exclusively, Mm -hmm. but he never makes the same movie again. He's like dipping his toes in different aspects of it. And to hear, like you said, like just like very casually talk about this very difficult thing to achieve, but also knowing like, there's value in explaining this. There's value. He knows his worth. And that's what I love about why I love hearing Carpenter speak because he doesn't get up his own ass about it. No, he doesn't pat himself on the back, but he knows that there's value in, in talking about it in some ways. Like I like to juxtapose him with someone like uncle Marty, Mm -hmm. um, who's, I mean, you can tell the man loves, movies like the way that carpenter does but when you hear when 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 scorsese does it there's this kind of like i don't want to say this air of superiority but he's so knowledgeable and he's so particular that whereas carpenter's just like oh yeah no i love that thing that was cool Mm -hmm. and like you don't hear Scorsese talk like that. No, with like Scors- it's the same kind of love and no. just coming at it from different sides. I think with Scorsese, I think there is a reverence to the art of cinema. That's what there's this like there's this almost like I can't believe that we have this means of storytelling available to us, and there's right. this kind of like not putting himself, but putting film or cinema itself up on the this art pedestal, form. the art yeah. form itself, and elevating. And look, the Scorsese is a national treasure that must be protected at all costs. Speaking um, of t-shirts, we want to get, I want to get one that says Martin Scorsese was right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's oh, yeah. the t-shirt that I want. And I want to wear it to like a Marvel premiere and just like get in fights. Hell yeah. Absolutely. Um, where does this rank in terms of Carpenter scores for you? Uh, oh, in terms of score. So there was, there's this, Ambient, I don't know if it's part of the score, if it's part of the ambience, but there was this like almost like a foghorn in the distance, like Mm -hmm. baked into the score that had me pausing my TV a few times to just make sure it wasn't like coming from because I had my windows open because it's a nice Mm -hmm. day, like make sure it wasn't like coming from outside or from one of my neighbors or God forbid from my own phone. Like, so I'm like pausing it listening and then as soon as i unpause it comes from the tv again so i'm like okay so that was a little distracting um i mean in in terms i i like the score but i don't think it it's as iconic as some of his others but it, i think it's absolutely very serviceable to what he's doing and it doesn't it doesn't pull me out like it doesn't detract mm-hmm. except for you know when that foghorn comes in um but it it it's not really like blowing me out of the water either yeah I love this score. Mm. I love the main theme. It's so different from Halloween in that it is that main theme of Halloween is very propulsive. There's an energy and a sense of urgency to it. Like it is the sound of like someone who is on the run and panic and getting away from somebody is the way where this one is very moody. It's very eerie. It's like something is off, but I can't put my finger on it. It's all um, bubbling, just yeah. just simmering. Whereas there, there's a lot more. I th- mm-hmm. You're right, kind of propulsiveness yeah. in the Halloween score. Kind of hoping that the vinyl is sitting in a gift box. Kind of like maybe what I asked for for my anniversary, along with a number of other. You'll have to let us know if it we'll is. We'll have to let you know. Um, well, if I'm still married Monday, I got it. No, I'm kidding. I mean, you are spending your anniversary yes, with me. So. <laughs> I am, no. No, we're going to the MFA later. We're going to the Museum of Fine Arts later oh, for a little awesome. celebration. So, um, yeah, I'm not that weird. Um, 
the I mean, thank God you are weird. I thank God I am. I am very weird. Um, the end of the movie, like the I'm thinking of like the climax out on the um, on the radio tower. That is like when the soundtrack starts to sound a lot like the like shape stocks in particular where mm. and I was watching this with my daughter last night who she was exhausted as her last day of school yesterday too and her and her friends I think probably walked about 10 miles all through town in the heat like they just kept walking everywhere and they're oh at that age where like they can do it and not complain but then like 8 30 hit and she was like Dumb. on the sofa under a blanket watching this with me not even watching it going why is the music so dramatic <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's a horror movie. What do you expect? Like clown music? But Oh, no, it's fog. Oh, my God. It's going to fan rescore <laughs> like Halloween with like <laughs> or the fog with circus music. Yes, please. Um, so I love this score. I the soundtrack actually opens with Houseman's monologue at the beginning of it, which I really love. Um I think it just sets a, a perfect mood. It's a great thing to throw on around Halloween. It's a great thing to like dim the lights to and just sit back and listen to, uh, which I've done uh, like throwing it on, on Spotify and just like sat in my little, little stereo setup here. And I'm like, just sets a great eerie mood. So it's, it's, you're right. It's not one of his more beloved scores. It doesn't have that iconic theme like Halloween or even escape from New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say there are shades of Inonio Morricone's thing score Agreed. you find in the main theme here in The Fog. I think there's some mirroring that goes on later on with the thing, that kind of steady, propulsive sense of paranoia. Well, and Morricone said he yeah. listened to Car- mm-hmm. some of Carpenter's scores yeah. to kind of get the feel for what his movies were like before yeah. scoring the thing. So yeah. it, that tracks. That makes it a just, lot of sense. It sounds like a Carpenter score. It really does. It really, really does. Um, yeah. Anything else? Anything we're missing? No. Uh, go watch this movie if you yeah. have not seen the the fog. Like I legitimately bought the 4K Steelbook just because i knew we were covering it mm-hmm. and i so now i own it and can watch it anytime i want yeah. and the 4k transfer is beautiful yeah. so yeah check it check it out and i also, oh another thing i love the his decision not to really give you a good look at the ghosts yes or ghouls or whatever you want to, like he he always casts them in silhouette or, or shadow like, I, I love that. I think that's really, mm-hmm. really, really fantastic and a really good choice. It makes merchandising pretty difficult, but like you can't do action figures of those characters. But I think there actually is an action figure of Blake yeah. somewhere. But like you don't it's not movie accurate because you don't really know what the hell he looked like from you based get, on this movie. Yeah. You get the one look at, I think they called him worm face. You get the one look at one of the ghouls right. faces, but you get a decent, I think I think it's keeping him in silhouette really works, especially when you have the red eyes, the red eyes. The and uh, the ending is a little goofy. Like the, um, we're going to like Hal Holbrook coming out with the giant gold cross. Yeah. I mean, it is when you realize that, those men died and this is like that's another thing getting into the moralism of the story when you think Mm -hmm. of like what did these men die for in the end it's about like a decoration an ornament 
That's what the men's lives were worth. It's an or a gold ornament. Um, yeah. But Holbrook coming out with that, uh, and then they just kind of hold it and vibrate, um, and then glow, and then glow. Oh, uh, Carpenter wanted Christopher Lee for this role. Oh, really? Yeah, he approached oh, Lee, and he approached Lee earlier for Halloween for, uh, for the role. No, for the role of Laurie. Um, <laughs> Yes. So he, he approached very different Lee. movie. Interesting. Very different movie. Uh, he approached Lee to play Loomis and Lee famously turned it down. And it said later, it's like it was one of his biggest regrets was turning down. So I find it really interesting that like and maybe it was like a scheduling conflict where he couldn't do it, where he has to turn down Carpenter again. I don't, he never worked with Carpenter as so, far no. as I know. I can't think of anything that he did with him. Um, yeah, and again, it would have been a much different priest. I mean, there's a, uh, there's a tragedy to how Holbrook, when you look, he just looks like he's been through the ringer, mm-hmm. right? Which you don't get with Christopher Lee. I think Christopher Lee, it's a lot more of a commanding presence on screen. I mean, Christopher Lee is just a shorthand for gravitas, yeah. really, when you get right down to it. He would fuck Blake up, I think, you know, yes. at the end of it. Um, I one do. My... Oh, no, go ahead. I was just, just going to say one of my favorite Christopher Lee stories is uh, when he got cast in Gremlins 2, he apologized to Joe Dante for doing Howling 4. Oh, like, I, I just think that's so sweet. <laughs> like, yeah, I did this really crappy movie that was a sequel to a movie you didn't want to have sequelized. Sorry about mm-hmm. that. Sorry, buddy, but I got to eat too. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, and I do love the end end of this movie where they come back and you get that great visual in the church with the ghosts standing there. And then the blade mm-hmm. comes up and you get that shtuk and into credits. It's Cut a great, so great good. little ending. I, I actually, yeah, I really love that ending because you get like you get that final note of remorse and guilt from Holbrook. Why not me? Why mm-hmm. did I get spared? Turn around. Oh, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Shit. Yeah. Done. Like it. It's such a great little button on the yeah. movie, and I, yeah. I I think it absolutely rips. Yeah. All right. That is our talk on John Carpenter's The Fog. Uh, we had a lot of fun with this one. Kept it loose, but I think you know we hit all the salient points. So I think we did. Yeah. You know. Hope hopefully you enjoyed our meanderings there. And if you want to hear more of us, Stephen, what is going on with Disenfranchised? Uh, Disenfranchised, we are currently, it's June, so we're doing our 80s animation uh, extravaganza this month. We, we've talked about, uh, what is that? We've talked about Transformers, the movie. We've talked about My Little Pony, the movie. And here in a few days, as of the time this drops, we'll be talking about um gi joe the movie and then uh, later this month we're also having our friends from high on cartoons on to talk about the chipmunk adventure uh so it's going to be a good month with some fun 80s animation talk um but uh but yeah you can check us out online at disenfranch pod um pretty much everywhere i am at chewy walrus on twitter instagram and letterbox so you can find me there as well Excellent. Well, listeners, if you want more of us, uh, Stephen and I, along with our friend Taffeta of the show Late, uh, we recorded for our relaunched Patreon page. We recorded about two and a half hours on one of the best heist movies of all time, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. That is up on our 
Patreon page, along with a lot of other stuff that had been up there when we previously had run uh, a Patreon page. So you can go to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum. Check out that latest episode as well as like movies like Mom and Dad, Werewolves Within, Crawl, um, Dark Man. I think the remake of The Blob is still up there. So we are going to be recommitted to like putting a lot of content up there over the c- coming months. Um, and you can go to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum for as low as two bucks. You're going to get uh, a bonus episode. That is a trial balloon for a new show that I'm hoping to launch at the end of this summer. We're going to get some episodes in the can, but you're going to get some exclusive access to some of that content first. Um, if you cannot become a patron right now, that's okay. A huge way you can support the show is wherever you are getting your podcast from, make sure you leave us a review. Uh, Apple is obviously the big one. So if you uh, get your podcast feed through Apple Podcast, go ahead, not only leave us a five-star review, but maybe write a few words about why you enjoy the show as well. It goes a long way to helping new listeners discover us. Um, and it also, like, it's just kind of nice to hear some feedback from the show. Like, I've we've gotten good and you know i would say bad feedback we've gotten really good constructive feedback at times that i find very helpful and it's nice to know what listeners think Um, but for the sake of like people finding us five stars a few nice words is always great you can find me at mike underscore snoonian on twitter and instagram find me at letterbox at mike chump change uh i pretty much have been doing it getting everything up and posted this year and writing some reviews there. Follow the show at uh, com. We post all our episodes there. Um, I think we need to do a bio page soon so all our listeners can very easily find all of our contributors as well. What we have coming up next, we are going to be doing one more movie here when it comes to John Carpenter. We are going to be talking about The Prince of Darkness, which, Chewy, that was your choice. So we're going to be continuing with our theme of religion. I've got my Scream Factory disc coming I've got for mine that. on the shelf. Uh, it's coming. It's supposed to arrive yesterday. It's a day or two late. Wouldn't it be Scream Factory if it wasn't late? Um, looking forward to talking about that really weird, weird Carpenter movie. After that, we're going to be dipping our toes in the water of Jaws. And then it is sought, sought the season of Sodom and Sawtober. So we got a lot of stuff lined <laughs> <rename> up. rename that? <laughs> I don't know. We are out. <laughs> <laughs>